Hello and welcome to the Royal College Psychiatrist podcast with me, Ella Marchant. This month at the college, we are celebrating South Asian History Month and we will be interviewing two psychiatrists, Dr Siobhan Bathikin and Dr Poonan Agasinghe. We will be discussing what it's like to have a family back in South Asia during the pandemic, the effect of COVID on deprived communities and finding solace in singing. Siobhan Mathekin is a higher trainee in the east of England. She has additional interests in transcultural psychiatry, digital psychiatry, physician well-being and advocating for international medical graduates. Puna Nagasinghe is a higher trainee in child and adolescent psychiatry. Puna completed her primary medical qualification in Sri Lanka prior to moving to the UK and achieved her master's at University College London. Her current interests are developmental psychiatry, family therapy and mentalisation based therapy. Okay, Poona, Siobhan, thank you so much for joining me today for South Asian History Month. Poona, could you tell me how you got into mental health? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a long story, actually. <laughs> so, um, because I, I always believe that uh, when it comes to mental health, it's it's so important. As, as you might know, like there's a saying called mensana incorpore sano, which means healthy mind resides in a healthy body. But more so, I believe that uh, there's no health without mental health. So prior to moving into UK, I worked in a pediatric unit. So in Sri Lanka, actually I'm from Sri Lanka. And uh, I always wanted to work uh, with children. So my first post here in UK uh, was in a highly specialized inpatient unit um, Uh, in a psychiatric uh, hospital and it helped me to understand how multidisciplinary approach works and um, I really like the the holistic approach they took when managing patients and that inspired me to come into psychiatry Uh, and because of my love for working with children I also decided to go into the field of child and adolescent psychiatry so it actually perfectly worked for me so I I like the field that I'm working at the moment and I'm I'm glad that I made that decision because it also gives me uh, the opportunity to manage my work and life uh, in a balanced manner. And Siobhan could we hear from you as well please on how you got into mental health? Hi Ella thanks for having us. Um, So I grew up in India um, in the south of India in a state called Kerala uh, I had quite an early interest in psychiatry, say from high school age maybe, um, and went into medicine with the intention of doing psychiatry, though my dad, who was a surgeon, was um, quite confident I would change my mind. Um, but the, going back to the reason why, um, I had a Catholic uncle, a priest and aunts who were my dad's sisters um, who lived in a convent in a rural village and they had a psychiatric hospital and a rehabilitation center for women with mental illnesses uh, right next to their convent. So what became routine was every time we visited them, which would be multiple times a year, we would also go to um, see the patients there and the ladies living in the rehabilitation home. And there were no age restrictions uh, like in the UK in terms of uh, children visiting and things. So in a way, I got to interact with them and the patients really close uh, right from a very young age. And I think 
things did stay with me from that. Um, for example, I'd noticed a few years on how a lot of the ladies living in the rehab were actually living there permanently, whereas my understanding was that it was more like a respite centre for their families where it was meant to be a short period of time. So when I asked, um, I was told that it's because a lot of the families didn't come back for them. And I think that really stayed with me. It sort of showed me how much of an impact stigma had. Um, of course, it was not all with evil intentions. There's a lot of financial implications when there's someone with uh, serious mental illness in the family. And there's also um, implications for the siblings because it's predominantly, at least back then, used to be arranged marriages and it impacts on the siblings being able to get married because of the stigma of um, mental illness being inheritable and um, just the general stigma in general. So all those things stayed with me and I think that's what sparked an interest. So when I came to the UK after my MBBS, um, I started training in psychiatry and I'm now at the um, registrar level, but at the opposite spectrum of age uh, interest as Purna because I like old age psychiatry the best. And you were saying that service users were, were left at this uh, nunnery? Yeah, so... Uh, so what happened was uh, it was meant to be like a short term respite for the families because th there's less community support in a lot of places. And this was a very rural place. So in the hospital that I mentioned, uh, it was run by nurses uh, who were also nuns and they only had the resource for a psychiatrist to come from the city one or two days a week. And this the rehab center attached to that turned into a therapeutic community or as we used to call it where they would end up living because some of the families didn't have the ability to look after them if they took them back home because there would be other financial implications of having to go to work whereas here of course the system's different um, and there's that community support and, and the whole healthcare system is different which is where the sort of um, deprived communities bit and the financial implications come in so yes so in the sense it was meant as short term but they ended up living there out of no choice and, and the nuns continue to look after them. Okay thank you for explaining that. So how are the Covid waves in your home country affecting you in terms of having family who be living in South Asia I don't know if either of you do but Siobhan could you take this question? Sure. Um, so I have my immediate family in the UK, so I always say that I'm probably a lot luckier than many IMGs or, well, I mean, international medical graduates. But what it's been like is I, I do have extended family there. I have my husband's family there. And it was almost like our, our waves were throughout 2020, so all the fears and anxieties um, many of which were reasonable, whether we would all be okay by 2021. We have uh, four ethnic minority doctors in the family in the UK. And as you know from the RCSIC task and finish group's first report, more than 90% of the ethnic minority doctors who died in the first wave were um, more than, sorry, more than 90% of the doctors who died were from ethnic minorities so there were lots of fears and and somehow that year passed and as soon as some sense of normality started coming and my parents came out of shielding after like 15 months 
that's when the covid wave the big covid wave in india happened and it was it was really difficult because um it was almost like we were out of it and then it was a different kind of pain i think it was very difficult because there's this model injury that you know you can't be there to help and you're also very conscious of the difference in the healthcare systems so you know that um it everyone is not going to have the same access to healthcare whether it's um you would have heard about the lack of oxygen and um doctors really struggling as well in terms of decisions that they had to be taking um and the cultural relationships and expectations from a doctor in the family or in the extended family from relatives is very different uh so i think that adds to the model injury on top of all the emotional worries and and fears for your family as well and as always i think it impacts newer doctors who and and any healthcare professionals who are new to the uk who've just come and people are still coming even during the pandemic and and they've had a really difficult time for example i i know a couple of junior imgs who who've lost parents i know people who've not been able to go back for funerals because they've just started their jobs in the uk and and it's red list countries so all that sort of when you know all that's happening it it does take a toll and Yes, I I would say it would be fair to say it's it's had an impact on many of us. And Puna, the same question to you. Do you have any family still living in South Asia? Uh, yes, Ella. I mean, my situation is different because my family actually lives in Sri Lanka and I'm I'm the only one who's living here. So, uh so uh, the Uh, the situation in sri lanka is a bit different because we were doing well to begin with initially and uh, then uh, the since mid april the total number of uh, covid cases uh, are on the rise and uh, there are about over 2000 new cases each day that um, that they they come across and currently the number of active cases are over 30000 in the country and country has a huge shortage of vaccines and struggling to administer the second dose of vaccine within the the time period and uh, the so uh, the initially uh, being being uh, in a, in a country that was uh, doing well and then going from there to a red list country it was actually a huge shock to the system because my parents uh, got uh, locked down with me during the first wave of covid and uh, they were here and then they moved back to sri lanka and uh, uh, the my parents actually were among the group of people who were waiting to have the second jab and luckily just about 4 days prior to uh, their sort of the the uh, the due date they managed to get the vaccine so it, it was a huge relief for me but at the same time i felt so anxious and worried and also helpless because of being about 11000 miles away i what can i do i mean i tried to contact and like the because the the whole country is going through the difficult time so it's it's really difficult to sort of ask for someone to help because like everybody's all in the same boat and uh, and i i do feel what others might be going through right now as well and uh, we we i mean 
Sri Lankans who are here, we are making a pledge to the UK government to send the 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 600,000 vaccines that's needed before the end of June. But I don't know whether we would be successful or not. But it's uh, so I hope I sincerely hope it will be because uh, I can I feel really sad uh, for the people who are actually waiting for the vaccines and they're they're struggling to get the second dose. And at the same time, uh, sometimes I feel like we are at a better place when it comes to vaccines and other countries are going through this huge way because they don't have the required facilities. Uh, so so it, it actually created a lot of anxiety and tension back I mean, here with me at the same time uh, within my family. So uh, working in, in, a, in a sort of a country far away from home, that certainly brings, I mean, as uh, Siobhan mentioned, it takes the toll. And uh, so you need to bear this tension while working and then to uh, sometimes feels like you need to park it aside and then carry on with the rest of your life. So, uh, yeah, it, it has had a huge impact actually having a family back in the country. Yeah, it sounds really, really challenging because you can't park that while you're trying to just get on with the day. It's hanging over you. Uh, certainly, because uh, I mean, I could remember I was feeling really, really anxious going, uh, going, leading up to. I was th thinking like, oh my God, it's, it's. I, I, I don't think it'll be possible because everybody was trying to get, um, like, get, get the second dose, and I, I was feeling so anxious. But luckily, I'm, I'm, I mean, like, they, they had their second jab before the, the, the due date. But there's a huge number of people still waiting. I feel so sad. About them because uh, I don't think they have uh, the same dose like uh, the because they used to uh, vaccinate with uh, the AstraZeneca the 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 Oxford jab but then the the country ran out of it and now they have introduced uh, another vaccine but uh, the the people who are still waiting they're still waiting so uh, yeah I hope actually this pledge would be successful so we would be able to send it to the people who are in need. Siobhan, what is the impact of COVID on you and your extended family? So Ella, I think it's changed as time goes. It was different, um, maybe ups and downs right from the first wave to now uh, due to different reasons. Initially, it being um, sort of all the supports that you had as um, yeah, parent to young children being taken away because my parents uh, had to go into shielding. We actually started their shielding before the government advice came because uh, you were hearing reports from Italy and and it didn't it didn't sound nice. I'm a, I'm a bit neurotic anyway, so I I was like we have to you know protect them and we have my brother, me and my husband uh, work near them in hospitals and we didn't want to put them at any risk. So that obviously added to a lot of day-to-day -day, um, stress. And and then going forward, um, I had to, I did have some trouble with anxiety. I haven't spoken a lot about it. And I did reach out then to practitioner health and have been getting therapy for that, which is not surprising given their statistics that have actually just been released about their pandemic uh, report, which showed 78% um, of uh, the doctors that reached out were women during the pandemic to practitioner health. And it was similar with the psychiatrist support service um, in the Royal College as well, which was around 72% women. Of course, it, it would be multifactorial, but 
I think it just um, helps to highlight um, the sort of impact there's been. And obviously you couldn't stop doing everything you were doing. So there were all these projects I was doing, PTC work. I was leading the well-being work stream, which was a bit too close to home um, to do in this particular year um, because everyone's talking about well-being now, but it's it's not that easy and it's it, it's complicated and, and you have to go through your own journeys as well in the process. So yeah, I, th I think I'm in a good place now and I'm hoping the worst is over. Um, but in terms of impact on the wider family as well, um, I, I think dad coped better with the shielding process and just being stuck at home, mum not so much. And in terms of extended family, we, we know people who've died. It'll be very different when I go back to India. I, I've never missed India so much ever. It's been the longest I've been away. Um, and I know that even though we've had to reschedule so many times when we whenever we do manage to go, um, there'll be lots of people who are no longer there, who were there before, friends and family. So that's a very sobering thought. Um, but we go on, I guess, and um, just try process it all as as uh, time goes on. Such it's such a sad story as well. Puna, is there anything that you'd like to add to that on the effect COVID's had on you and your extended family? Yes, Ella. I mean, um, you know, when it comes to uh, the uncertainty, actually, I always feel that there are two dimensions to it, like that the pandemic actually falls very much onto the zone of like unsafe uncertainty. So it, it created too many unknowns in my personal and professional life because I, I worked in a, a unit um, and it it got shut down temporarily. So it had so I had to work and uh, in a in a different unit. So which brought unexpected changes for me um, and also for my training. Uh, and my family who were there with me, they couldn't fly back uh, as the borders got shut down. And initially the homeschooling, I had to homeschool my child, but uh, it was quite challenging as well. I'm, I mean, like it's, uh, it, I'm sure um, Shivan might be sharing the sort of the, the same experience that I, I did. And initially it was so challenging to get a little one to do homeschooling. And then after two weeks, it, it became quite difficult. So, so at the same time, I felt like I was the biggest sort of the risk factor for my parents who are here, who came here just for, for a holiday. And then it got extended because they couldn't fly back. So every time when I come back home, uh, I felt so anxious and that I would maybe carry something with me. So uh, so uh, even though it, there were pros and cons, but at the same time, I felt actually quite relieved when my parents went back because I, I, do, I didn't feel that I I'm, I'm carrying that risk with me whenever I come back home. So it it brought actually a lot of challenges at, and also ex, sort of uh, later on helped me to uh, sort of reflect more about the uncertainty of life really and how the things that we taken for granted actually could uh, how that uh, the, the huge value in it. At the same time, I mean, uh, I haven't been to my country like just like Shavon. I was planning to visit Sri Lanka last year, which I postponed. And of course, in this year as well, I, I don't think we, we can fly because uh, Sri Lanka is a red list country now. So the 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 
not being in contact with the sort of the extended family, it has a huge impact. And uh, I mean, when we go there, I think it will bring up a lot of emotions at the same time. I think it will be quite overwhelming as well. It's definitely going to be an emotional reunion. And it's so sad to think that you're you're not just separated by a car journey. It is a really, really long journey to get there. And it's like, there's only so much that video calls can do. Certainly. And uh, my, my my son, I mean, I'm, I'm a single parent. So my son is actually quite close to grandparents because they've been uh, uh, they've been visiting uh, me quite frequently to help me with uh, bringing up the child. So he's extremely close to especially to granddad and uh, for I mean, uh, we call Archie grandma. So uh, he he keeps saying, oh, I miss I miss them, mummy. So but uh, I mean, I explain him. But at the same time, I feel like it helps uh, my child to build up the understanding of actually the importance of the family life. At the same time, sometimes the, the difficulties that that brings it like being living in two separate countries. So, yeah, I mean, if certainly when we go back, it will be a, a hugely emotional at the same time quite relieving actually so I'm, I'm i'm waiting i'm counting days i hope that day would come soon siobhan can you describe the kind of effect covid has had on deprived communities well i'm i'm not sure if i'm the right person in terms of expertise but in my simple terms uh, i think what covid's shown is that i did hear this phrase and it sort of stayed with me that we're probably all in the same storm, but not in the same kind of boats. Um, so whether whether it be starting with lockdown and people who are in flats with young children without any fresh air options or people who had a nice garden to get some fresh air who would have found it a bit easier, obviously, or whether it be the risk of mortality or the risk of contracting it. Um, or if you think of in a wider global perspective with regard to the healthcare systems or differential access to vaccines, like uh, Purna was referring to, all all those things sort of um, stay, stand out very clearly through this whole thing. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling um, to, to hold on to. And I, I guess how you cope with that is everyone tries to do what they can. So especially when you have a connection with um your heritage and so for example diaspora organizations in the uk so for example for india bapio bipa they've all been doing and lots of work with regard to the covid wave uh, financially with providing teleconsults and we try join in everyone does their bit to to sort of alleviate um the little suffering that's possible, even though you know that it's only a drop in the ocean and um, some amazing seniors have done things like bereavement training for children who've um, lost parents in India, sort of training teachers and doctors how to support them. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely an issue and I think it's raised lots of um, public health um, discussions in terms of how we build back fairer going forward post-pandemic. But yeah, there's there's lots to think and lots that COVID has taught us, I guess. Poona, the same question to you, please. You could draw on communities in the UK or communities in South Asia. 
certainly, Ella. I mean, of course, as uh, the uh, Chevron mentioned, actually, of course, we are in the same storm, but not in the same boat. I mean, uh, people might have heard a lot about this because uh, the even the COVID, uh, it strikes us um, almost not at random. It feels like that because the mortality is much higher in elderly people and poorer groups and ethnic minorities. And also it, um, it affects the economics in, in the sense the the communities, much poorer communities, that the economic fallout is more. And uh, the uh, especially when we look at the exposure to infection, it is unequal because the uh, the deprived communities where there's overcrowding, the poverty, and then people who are more into manual jobs, so where they have to do sort of face-to-face -face work. And so for that matter, so their the exposure to uh, the COVID and the risks are higher. So even though they want to sometimes uh, the prevention is better than cure, but actually the prevention becomes uh, quite difficult and hard for them. And uh, even though we we ask uh, all the sort of the measures to take, but how can they? Because they, they are deprived. So this, the, the effect actually in UK as well as globally, it has shown that uh, the 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 the, pre, the preventative aspect cannot be sort of uh, uh, I would say everybody cannot use the same sort of measures in these settings. So it it actually doesn't help. So uh, hence the 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 reasons for the sort of the widespread actually from the Asian countries partly might be due to that as well. Of course, we know about the mutants, but at the same time, the living conditions matter a lot, uh, when it, especially when it comes to spreading. So, um, I mean, I, I feel that sometimes, even though we know what to do, what needs to be done, but there are certain constraints when it comes to deprived communities, which becomes, unfortunately, a barrier. So uh, that, that put them under a disadvantage. So even the, the lockdown measures, so um, it has sort of a disproportionate uh, effects on the low-income families, with especially with younger children as well. And uh, so the, the, the living expenses, the extra cost that is needed, so they're struggling. So the, the impact actually is not equal. And uh, so they are worst off, unfortunately. And moving on to one of our final questions, and it's a big one. How do you think you would handle a pandemic if it were to happen again? It's obviously not something that we hope ever does happen again, but now that we've experienced one for the first time in our lives, is there something that you think you would do differently from, you know, from here in the news? Because it was so unbelievable at first that we would ever go into a UK-wide lockdown that we wouldn't be able to travel and now all of that stuff is is a reality. So, Puna, how do you think you would handle a pandemic if it would happen again? I mean, I, I hope this would be the last pandemic that I would see. But uh, so, but certainly it could happen again. But I think uh, the learning from uh, this pandemic is quite key. I mean, I'm not an expert at the same time, but I mean, reading about it and what we have sort of uh, experienced over 
last one and a half years, uh, I think there are, there are, there's a lot that we could learn if uh, if if it happens again. I mean, I've certainly for me, I think we uh, I would certainly act more swiftly and uh, need to impose, unfortunately, the tougher measures at the beginning. So because it's if you go early and uh, with with stricter measures, we could have con sort of the controlled the peak sooner. And also, I think the other aspect would be the effective communication, because when I I certainly felt overwhelmed by the wealth of information that was coming about my personal life, about the, the professional life, wherever you go, you get new information, new things to do, the changes. It's too much to keep up with. So like effective communication, maybe from government, like maybe a text message saying like, this is what's happening. This is what you need to do. So it's simple as such. So people can they just understand actually what's happening in day-to-day -day life and um, also these messages being maybe a bit concise and simple so they know okay fine this is the current rules at the moment and this is what we need to do and also the other key would be testing because I think if you can test ramp up the testing like initially and then isolate so and trace so that would contain so it's basically going swiftly and more tougher restrictions at the same time with good effective communication and testing and tracing so that would be my my way if if, if things need to be done differently and Siobhan do you do you want to um do you want to have a crack at the question or should we move on to the next one no I'm I'm happy to give it a go um okay great so with regard to uh, what would happen differently next time uh, on a personal level, I would definitely keep a journal because I I quite enjoy finding old entries from years ago, especially during sort of hard times in life and, and you forget what it was like. And I, I love reading that. So I would definitely keep a journal. Um, and in terms of a wider perspective, um, I, I think hindsight's a wonderful teacher, but I think there should always be willingness to learn from others' mistakes and also what others are doing well. So Poona mentioned about the communication and uh, I was reading that uh, Taiwan had an amazing digital minister who tackled very promptly all the miscommunication and all the conspiracy theories that were cropping up because she'd employed comedians um, specifically to target this through social media and within 24 hours of any new conspiracy theory coming, which obviously has a lot of impact on vaccine uptake and how much people adhere to um, precautions and things. So there's a lot of um, good things, I think, which will take time to learn from as we move on and hear how things happened in different parts of the world. But on a personal level, I, I think it was about holding on to the good things that came out of it uh, professionally and personally. And I think I would like to see it as something that gives strength for whenever the next big crisis in life happens, which which may not be a pandemic, but I'm sure we'll all have crises again. And on a final, more positive note, during lockdown, there's been a lot of talk of kind of sustaining, I mean, trying to have a good mental health trying to have a good mental well-being and have you renewed your interest in any south asian art or music um and have you been able to use it to support your own mental health yeah ella i mean uh i'm i'm very much into music i i love music and i used to do singing when i was back in the country and uh so uh, 
music actually it has always been part of my life and uh, i always uh, enjoy i would say the music would match the mood that i'm in so <laughs> so ba basically during during the lockdown i've started uh, doing vocal lessons uh, because I wanted to get back to singing. And uh, so it, it hugely helped me to sort of uh, boost up my morale and uh, to feel actually sometimes uh, on, a, on a bad day, maybe singing certainly, certainly lift up my mood. So, uh, so this is this is something which actually I started during lockdown, which is, which is quite positive. And I'm, I'm, I'm hugely proud about it. And also Siobhan, like I, I can sing in uh, different languages so I can sing in Hindi as well so uh, so uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy sort of different singing in different languages. That's absolutely amazing and so so amazing that you can sing in different languages as well. Siobhan is this something that you've um, rediscovered as well while you've been in lockdown? Ella I have to be honest and say that I honestly haven't had the many <laughs> or time to do that. I'm very impressed with uh, lots of colleagues, including Purna, who've managed to. I do have some ideas, um, but my um, immediate task was to just get through this. Uh, it was just that lack of headspace, I think, with um, very young kids. Hats off to Purna for managing homeschooling. Uh, I, I only had to do it for the two weeks that um, uh, my older son's teacher had um, COVID. But I wouldn't have coped with clinical work and that um, continuing. So I'm, I'm really in awe of everyone who managed that. Um, so I did learn Carnatic music, classical music in childhood as well. And I think besides that, it was more about just feeling a bit more connected. So it would be little things that I realized I miss more. So for example, at the school run, my son goes to a very diverse school in in England and when I would hear lots of South Asian languages being spoken by parents speaking various languages just at school drop off like it, it would bring back a lot of memories and and all all those little things that you miss so much it's just sort of come back so I'm really looking forward to going back and sort of reconnecting with everything whenever it's possible um, and just yeah my my take home for myself um, was to just slow down a little bit after this whole thing is over and so I've taken some time out, uh, extended time out um, for various reasons before I go back uh, as SD5. So that's that's been my takeaway from this because I um, just need to slow down and take everything in and you know uh, think about what really matters which I think is what one of the things the pandemic's taught us. So no, nothing exciting to share on that. I think just getting through the pandemic, as you say, is is an achievement in itself. You can only put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, so certainly. I mean, I agree with that. But at the same time, like I think it depends on uh, the the things that are important for you. So uh, for me, it's very much actually part of my life. So um, I I love listening to music. Even I mean, it's not it started well before. So it's even before pandemic. So I think that the understanding the priorities for oneself is quite important. So this, in this case, actually, the music, it goes well hand in hand with my life. So I think, yeah, it helped me. 
Having said that, Purna, I've started listening to Hindi songs a lot more than I used to before the pandemic. So, yeah, I'm with you. Hopefully, I'll get to a point where you are in the next few months once I uh, stop doing a lot of the things I'm doing now. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you so, so much for today. You've both been amazing. Thank you to both our speakers, Siobhan and Purna, for talking to us about their families and what they've experienced during the pandemic. If you would like to read our blog for South Asian History Month, please go to our website, www.rcpsych.ac.uk, select news and features at the top of the screen, then choose blogs. Thank you for listening to the Royal College Psychiatrist podcast with me, Ella Marchant.